Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I'm Sam Ashurst, I'm a writer, I'm a director and I'm a podcaster. And someone else who's a podcaster is Dan Martin. But not today, today he's in France being a special effects artist. And so I'm joined by Movie Melt alumni, Evolution of Horror contributor, VHS distributor an all-round cool person, Shay Mossifin. Shay Mossifin. Yes, it's Shay's time on the show. And we're here to talk about a movie that was completely new to me, even though I chose it. And the reason I chose it was I do like to do VHS era stuff with Shay. We won't always do that, but it's fun to get Shay's perspective on movies like this. And yeah, like I said, completely new to me. But I'm so glad I chose it. I'm so glad we pulled it off the pile. Me too. Because I loved it so much. Mm -hmm. It is Don't Go in the House. And Shay, what's your background with this movie? I bought this tape from a video store that was liquidating when I was in, I think, in junior high. And I had it for a long time and overlooked it because of the name. But don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) And the cover art is, it's really good, but it's it's a black and white drawing. And it's not particularly eye-catching. And when I was that age, I just wanted blood and guts and slasher. And that's the kind of thing I wanted to dig into. And I didn't really give it a chance until I'd heard from someone else that it was good. And it really blew me away. Yeah, I think I also overlooked it, not necessarily for the cover, but definitely because of the title. It's not a very exciting title. It's not a very active title. Don't go in the house. It does sound like you know, your mum or your teacher talking to you rather than uh, a horror voiceover guy. And there's so many other angles they could have taken with the title. It is a bit of a weird choice. Yeah, Um, I think they were influenced by other don't movies. It was a bit of a trend. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a trend that Edgar Wright played into with his trailer for Grindhouse. Yes. Don't. Don't. (laughs) Exactly. But I'm glad we did go into the house because... From the very opening moments, I mean, I was on board from the production logo. I got very excited about that. It's a particularly nice one. But after that logo, it opens with a really nice scene, doesn't it? A it really, really does. Cool sequence. The sound design is amazing. You get it right off the bat. It's yeah. the, the sound of fire and you're, you're pretty much inside of an incinerator mm. and trying to figure out why. Like, why are we on fire <laughs> in this movie? <laughs> Yeah, and the flames are beautiful. Very peaceful. It's almost yeah. like those videos of volcanoes and lava flows calming ASMR style. Yeah, right. Yeah. Except it goes from that into our first horrifying moment. Uh, a guy who's very clearly in a burn suit. Um, it's supposed to be one of those asbestos suits, but it's very, very padded. Yeah. From those opening moments with the kind of ambient music as well, I really felt in safe hands straight away. Definitely. And the music was really interesting. Apparently the original score was lost. There was a piece recorded for the movie that just didn't work out for whatever reason. It was unusable. So they improvised with a really interesting ambient score. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, there's a lot of low oscillating synth tone. There are incidental sounds things that you wouldn't expect from a soundtrack almost like the soundtrack to forbidden planet Mm. which is all drippy reverby sound effects and electronic oscillations Mm. there's a lot of really low grumbling tones in Mm. this movie that really suit the emotional message of the scene over and over again there's scenes where he's listening to music on vinyl and it becomes its own character that happens over and over again he puts on a disco record he puts on a heavy rock and roll record and then there's a disco scene too Mm -hmm. where you're immersed in the sound yeah 
And it's just a really fascinating way to weave music into the story. And I, I kept wondering, like, what is the music doing to his mind state? How is it influencing his behavior? That's really interesting because he has a very interesting relationship with his mother. We should point that out. Yep. <laughs> and when she passes away, this is all very early on, so not too much of a spoiler. He starts to hear a strange voice who basically tells him he can do whatever he wants now. And he's very childlike in those moments because the first thing he gets excited about is the fact that he can play his music as loud as he wants. Yes. Um, and it does feel like the soundtrack stuff is almost like his internal world mm -hmm. and the sound design on the voice is very interesting as well really beautifully done very creepy very eerie yeah and yeah. so you're right sound and and how it affects the environment is a very very key part of this movie he has more than one voice in his head too mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he has his mother's voice and then he has the voice of the inevitable victims yes <laughs> but they're personified into a, a single whispering voice mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that basically tells him that he's the master and mm -hmm. he's free and he can do whatever he wants and then you have the mrs bates voice on the other end telling mm. him what to do and it gets louder whenever he's closer to where she is the multiple voices thing is interesting there might even be one more voice which we can't really get into because that definitely is a big spoiler well how did you feel about his the way they portray his mental state and his mental illness because he's clearly struggling with trauma with childhood abuse yeah this is a, an example of a trend that dan and i talked about recently the modern day trauma exploitation this movie was ahead of its time in many ways i don't know if it was a direct influence on some of the movies that released in the 80s that were a little bit more kind of slow paced and exploratory but you know there are elements of this film that even feel lynchian at times like the sound design and the music and oh, all that for kind sure. of thing mm -hmm. in terms of his mental state directly i think it's a really unique way to show his inner world and it's all about sound whether it's the voices that he's hearing or the stuff that we don't hear mm -hmm. that when he discovers his mum's body and he kind of makes that screaming expression. Yes, I loved that part. Yeah. You don't know if the sound is off and yeah. he is screaming and he can't hear his own scream or if he's just in such a state of frozen horror that he can't speak. Yeah, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Fright. Oh, yeah. Where the killer is hearing and seeing things that aren't really happening. Yeah, it's just the whole thing is really fascinating. I don't know if we could pin... You know, we're not psychologists, so we couldn't yeah. pin an exact condition on him, what they right. were trying to represent. I got that vibe that they were sort of experimenting, yeah. <laughs> like trying to, to portray that he's struggling, but they didn't really try to push any particular agenda. And then obviously the way it goes, and don't worry, precious arrowheads, I'm not going to spoil this, but the very final sequence pushes it into a, a different realm altogether, mm -hmm. potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really interesting stuff. Well, he was studying uh, the actor, um, Dan Grimaldi, yeah. said in, the, the, in his interview, in the special features, that he studied child abuse yeah. extensively and, and talked to people who had been hospitalized mm -hmm. due to trauma from childhood abuse and that he tried to channel his performance through that lens. And, you know, rather than thinking about mental illness, he's thinking about, like, how, what is this person going through and how is he coping with this? Yeah, I really love that because that's one of the things that's so special about this movie. I really thought it was going to be a cheesy, throwaway, exploitation-y mm -hmm. thing. And 
while it does have elements of that the overall tone and atmosphere is a lot more serious it's a lot more somber and even the death stuff is treated pretty seriously and realistically as well mm-hmm. um yeah. apparently the actors who played the the burnt corpses were were dancers who were the same height as the murder victims but much slimmer because obviously the bodies shrink when they burn and it's attention to detail like that and with Grimaldi doing that very very difficult and serious research that does elevate this film and make it a much higher standard than I was expecting. Yeah and Grimaldi didn't audition for this role either he was poached from the stage and you can see that in his performance his gait is very like you mentioned before very childlike there's a scene where he jumps up and down on a chair yeah 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 and he's being berated by a boss and he's cowering in the corner and kind of mumbling like a child incoherently mm. and and even his facial expressions everything about his performance is completely it's like channeling it's like he's in the moment which also makes him a really interesting serial killer because he's not your typical slasher he's not a domineering hulking figure he's a pretty normal looking guy there are jump scares in this movie but they're mostly directed at him. Right. <laughs> they don't happen to the other characters, per se. He has flashbacks. We get this dialogue of his inner voices. There's this really powerful scene with a, a priest that we won't spoil, but he unloads a lot of his emotional baggage and, yeah. and his anxieties and his fears. I don't know. I didn't feel fear when I looked at him on the screen. I felt all of the emotions that he must yeah. have been feeling, too. I felt anxiety. I felt hope. I felt pity for him. I felt disappointed because he has... A friend. That's also an interesting thing about this movie is that he has a really good friend, <laughs> a coworker who actually really cares about him. It's not very often when a slasher has, you know, a real buddy in their corner. It's this guy Bobby is always checking in with him, asks him to go out and, and hang out, and you see him quietly. You see our our lead character quietly unraveling and hiding what he's going through from Bobby, because I think he sees Bobby as kind of like a brother right he doesn't have a mother that he can relate to his dad's not in the picture i think what he needs is a is a brother in his life someone to really guide him through what he's experiencing and be a tether for him and and he's just spiraling deeper and deeper yeah i mean bobby's always there trying to pick up the pieces with him yeah and we've talked about the mother we can't not mention the the iconic mother and son movie franchise um psycho Uh, But this is a little bit more interesting than Psycho in a way, because with Norman, it was just a domineering mum, you know, bullied, kind of weak man. Whereas here, it goes into a bit more depth and there's a bit more kind of backstory to the, the troubled and traumatic relationship between these people, because it's kind of inferred that he is the product of a a rape. He is um, the child of rape. Potentially, he talks about being born of a a terrible sin and every time he shows any kind of evidence of, you know, being bad, he was punished in an extreme way by his mum. Absolutely. Themes of evil. Yes. And and, and what is evil? Is, Is the devil a thing or is it the personification of evil? And there... Yeah, and fire. Like, that's another theme that consistently right. comes up. This movie reminds me a lot of Dante's Inferno. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely. Almost every circle of hell is covered. There are three bodies that he keeps stored in the house, and he'll go into a room and speak to them. And at the center of Dante's Inferno is the devil, and it's a three headed beast. Oh. And he's going in to talk to these three corpses. Oh, it's that's awesome. So creepy. Yeah, super creepy. And. 
Um, you talked a little bit about the extras earlier. I did. Um, what were some of your favorite moments in the extras? Because there's quite a lot of cool stuff. There's there. a lot. Yeah, there's actually quite a few. There is a little interview with actor Dan Grimaldi, who, by the way, you figured out is in The Sopranos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he's so good in The Sopranos. He is. Yeah, there's a, a featurette called Playing With Fire. And he's interviewed by, ironically, William Hellfire, who Ooh. is a, a director. I think he was part of the Wave Productions documentary, may yes. have made some of those himself. He interviews Grimaldi. He talks about being the star of a feature film for the first time and kind of feeling like, oh, do I deserve my own trailer? And <laughs> like, this oh, is wow. kind of weird for me. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And also feeling kind of like he didn't want to, he didn't want to go full method, but he wanted to be alone. He wanted to be in his own thoughts and really prepare because it's a difficult role. But sometimes it got to him. And every now and then he'd share lunch with his production assistant. He'd just say, hey, would you mind staying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it was a really entertaining interview. And he's just such a, you can tell he's a really nice guy. Like yeah. he's not nearly as scary as he is on the screen. Because even in The Sopranos, he has that maniacal glint in his eye. Even when he's acting straight, he's one of those actors. You can see there's something bubbling underneath. He's oh, great, masterful. Great casting in The Sopranos. Yeah, it looks normal, but also is very intimidating and uh, creepy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fantastic. And yeah, was there anything else that you dug into? Yeah, there was another featurette called We Went in the House, which yeah. is a locations tour with Michael Gingold from Fangoria. No way. Yeah, awesome. really fun. Yeah, they went to all the sites. They went to the sites in New York. They went to the sites in New Jersey. In particular, The House which actually was just as dilapidated as it looked in the film because there are rooms that look really gorgeous and lush and have nice wallpaper and nice carpet and wood and then suddenly everything's peeling and (laughs) you can see the boards and the ceiling and Mm. it's moldy and kind of smell parts of the house just by watching it yeah and it really was in that state it was owned by a, a family called the chins and i believe one of them was a school teacher And they allowed this movie to be filmed there. And now it's owned by a historical society and they host ghost hunts and a haunted house inside of the house every year. Fantastic. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, anything else? There is a nice interview with the writer and the producer. Fantastic. And that was really interesting. They talk about coming up with the name. They talk about initially it was named The Burning Man. Oh, yes. And they, of course, they changed it to Don't Go in the House because of pressure from the producers. They were part of a post-production studio in New York called August Films. Mm -hmm. And apparently that's where Sam Raimi and George Romero and Errol Morris went whenever they needed post-production. So these editors got together and essentially wrote a story and developed it into this screenplay, Uh. which is a different way of going about things. And... uh, yeah, they hired a DP who actually went on to shoot the Die Hard series and the Bourne Ultimatum series. Yeah. Wow, that's an excellent DP right there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I can't get to the end of this episode without discussing the effects. Dan would never forgive me. And I really loved the way they handled this stuff. The first kill that we see on screen properly is done in this really cool animated style. It, it looks like uh, Ray Harryhausen's Nightmare. It's... It's so beautifully done. They talked about that. It was a split prism shot. They had one body burning and they superimposed it over the actor. Oh, wow. Hanging there. Yeah. Incredible. So cool. Yeah. And I really love the way the, the burnt corpses look. It reminds me of kind of 
Italian horror cinema reminds me a little bit of Spanish horror cinema. Mm-hmm. Even. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, like the Blind Dead series. Exactly. Yeah. Like the Blind Dead series. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of Ega <laughs> with Richard Keel, <laughs> right. the caveman movie. Yeah, yeah. He keeps all the corpses of his family in the cave and yeah. talks to them. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, on that note, let's move on to recommendations based on the movie. I think I'm going to go first and I'm going to start with a movie that will be very familiar to the Precious Arrowheads and that is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Uh, I could also recommend, you know, Maniac. That's a very appropriate movie for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but the serial killer flick it has most in common with for me is Henry. It has a similar slow pace punctuated by extreme violence. Donnie has a best mate, as we discussed, almost as dumb as Otis. Uh, Not quite, though. (laughs) (laughs) And it has an atmosphere and style with some arbitrary shots of trees and stuff that really puts me in mind of Henry. I won't go on about uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because we have a whole episode on it. If you want Mm -hmm. to hear me and Dan talk about that, then... That is, um, I do like that episode quite a bit. Dan has lots of interesting things to say on that Mm -hmm. one. But yeah, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. My first recommendation for Don't Go In the House. Shay, what have you got for us? Well, like Don't Go In the House, we have Next of Kin, directed by Tony Williams. It's an intensely psychological horror film with a gorgeous and stylish cinematography and features a massive, imposing mansion. Oh, yes. (laughs) And also a slow burn pacing that rages in its final act. Our lead character is is a woman who's inherited this massive estate from her mom and also a business because it is filled with patients, uh, medical patients, elderly uh, folks who are, I think it's uh, there's treatment for Alzheimer's and different mental conditions. And she essentially had been running away from her mother and from this home her entire life and is suddenly being forced to deal with this massive estate (laughs) so she arrives and and she's very much clinging to her sanity while living and working in this situation and this movie is really more of a mystery than don't go in the house there's complex hidden backstory which reveals its dark secrets and horrifying truths one scene at a time our main character is also living in the shadow of her estranged mother and the house is as much of a character and a reflection of her mental state. It's also a lesser-known gem. Oh, yeah. And judging by its box, I think it'd be pretty easy to pass over. So I'm going to recommend this for folks who were just as pleasantly surprised with Don't Go in the House as I was. Yeah, absolutely. Next of Kin is an incredible movie. Like, so atmospheric, so cool. And I hope that Arrow puts that one out at some point. Oh, it my really, God. It really, really deserves it. There are scenes that just took my breath away. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Great, great choice. And next up from me, I'm going to do a Dan and recommend a TV show. An 80s kids TV show, no less. Oh. But Chucky is too good to not recommend here. It's about a kid with an imaginary friend who might not be so imaginary, who speaks to him in a creepy voice while the camera zooms in on his face. (laughs) To say any more would be too much of a spoiler. But if you combined Henry and Chucky you'd get Don't Go In The House for sure. I think it's available on DVD in the UK. No Blu-ray yet, I don't think. Wow, I've uh, never heard of this. Yeah, oh, it's so weird. It's so creepy. Like, UK kids TV in the 80s was so fucked up. Yeah, that's different. Um, Here we had a couple good shows. We had Eerie Indiana, which is a little more like Goosebumps. but Oh, yeah, and pre-X-Files Eerie Indiana as well, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, yep, Chucky for Don't Go In The House. That's my final recommendation for this movie. 
Shay, what is your final recommendation for Don't Go in the House? You already mentioned the quintessential slasher character study, Psycho, but for our purposes, I'd like to recommend Psycho 3. Hey! <laughs> Directed by Perkins himself in 1986, in a sequel that, because of its title, like Don't Go in the House, it's often overshadowed, and it's overshadowed by its matriarch. Yes. Yeah. So here we have Norman running the show at his old stomping grounds, the Bates Motel. He claims he's rehabilitated, but I think he's just highly suppressed. (laughs) (laughs) Go figure. And this was, of course, being made in the 80s. It's sleazier, it's uglier, but it's more emotionally revealing. And this entry in the franchise, honestly, I think it gets better every time I watch it. It's underseen and underappreciated and really quite entertaining. So I would highly recommend taking it for a spin. It's fantastic. Yeah, it really is an 80s version of Psycho. It's a perfect way of describing it. And once again, we do have an episode on Psycho 2 back in the archives. It's one of our earliest episodes. Um, So again, if you want to hear me and Dan talk about Psycho 2, not Psycho 3... Then go back and check that out. And hopefully Arrow will put out Psycho 3 at some point. Mm-hmm. Another another one that I'd love to see in the collection. All right, that's it for recommendations based on the movie. We're going to move on to what we've been watching in the past couple of weeks. And I'm going to start with The Last Seduction, which is one of the all-time great modern noirs. Linda Fiorentino's Bridget is one of the best characters of the 90s, just unstoppable And the movie's directed by John Dahl. He made it shortly after Red Rock West, which is another massive recommendation. And like that movie, The Last Seduction has a pitch black sense of humour and just a really, really smart script. It would double bill very well with Lost Highway if you fancied doing a, a Bill Pullman pairing. But you could also put it alongside stuff like Double Indemnity or any iconic femme fatale flick. The Last Seduction, I really love it. I totally recommend it. Shay, what have you been watching? I watched something much less classy. <laughs> it's called Aberration from 1997. Oh, this cool. is a rewatch for me. I got the tape recently at a swap. Oh, nice. And it stars Pamela Gidley, who you might recognize from Fire Walk With Me. And it also takes place in the woods. <laughs> and a biology student has discovered that all the wildlife and insects in this one particular area have gone extinct they're they're dead he doesn't know why so he's there studying and he comes across this woman living in a cabin well one thing leads to the other and they discover that there are small ravenous mutant lizards that are devouring everything around them and it's a gross one there's a lot of sloshy slimy special effects lots of little beasties running around and a really interesting dynamic between the two characters who are in the cabin i really enjoy it i think it's underrated And it is one of those examples of a late 90s horror movie that kind of slipped under the rug a little bit. After Scream, kind of just started watching older horror movies (laughs) and not really keeping up on what was happening then. And this is one that I'm glad to have been uh, exposed to. Fantastic. Wonderful recommendation. And it's a recommendation for me. I haven't actually seen that one. And it sounds exactly up my street. So thank you for that, Shay. And I am going to class it up again with Bergman, A Year in the Life. So we're going from the ridiculous (laughs) to the truly sublime because this documentary from 2018 focuses on one of Bergman's most prolific 12-month periods, though he did have a lot of uh, prolific periods. He was uh, very, very focused and driven. 
But yeah, in 1957, it was a year in which he released The Seventh Seal and Wild Strawberries. He made two more movies, a TV movie and a bunch of plays, all while being a total douchebag. Now, I love Bergman, I love his movies, but this is a true warts and all documentary with some absolutely insane reveals that I won't spoil here. I mean, everybody knows he was a pretty notorious philanderer. He had many, many affairs, but oh my God, he was so much worse than that. So much worse than I ever imagined. Oh. Yeah, seriously, there's there's <laughs> one <didn't> know. <laughs> there's one particular reveal on this documentary that I just cannot believe has been included. Yeah, it's insane. I'll tell you off mic, Shay. It's a really great documentary, beautifully put together. And even though, you know, you see these dark sides to Bergman, but no one should be deified. Everyone has the shadow side. Everyone has their dark side. And it's really important to bring that kind of stuff out into the light. And it doesn't affect my enjoyment of his movies whatsoever. Anyone who loves his stuff, who does watch this documentary, hopefully you come away from it still able to enjoy his, his films. But um, oh my God, <laughs> is all I'm going to say. Um, all right, Shay, well... what's uh, next from you? I watched another movie from 1986 called Royal Warriors, directed by David Chung and starring Michelle Yeoh. (laughs) She stomps some butts in this glass-shattering cop drama about a gang of war veterans who hijack a plane, slaughter a police officer's wife and child, and generally wreak havoc in the dangerous but fulfilling pursuit of crime. (laughs) There's an incredible scene where at least like eight tons of sugar glass are shattered in this very 90s-looking bar called California. It's got like a neon <laughs> sign that says California. Awesome. Also has one of the most bizarre ending sequences I've ever seen in an action movie. Oh, like wow. a really interesting twist on revenge and what people okay. w- what people would do for for a perceived slight. Oh wow. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, I've never even heard of this one, certainly never seen it, so another recommendation for me. Fantastic. We're not going to do the extra features theme tune because Dan isn't here and it would feel like a gross betrayal. Yeah, we can't do that without Dan. We can't do that without Dan. We miss you, Dan. Looking forward to you being back. But until you get back, Shay and I will be doing another episode next time. And we're going to be doing Life Force, which I'm very excited to watch with Shay. A wonderful, wonderful movie. Uh, Toby Hooper classic so yeah join us for life force next time mm-hmm. and in the meantime you can uh, follow shay on social media by going to to black underscore vv video black video on instagram or on facebook perfect and if you want to hear more talk about weird vhs movies from me and shay you can go to patreon forward slash vhs quest and subscribe right now we're offering Uh, both of my movies a little more flesh and a little more flesh too the digital downloads will be yours if you subscribe at the ten dollar level and we started vhs quest because we're sitting on a literal mountain of obscure rare vhs tapes that many have never seen the light of day in any other format yeah so we're covering a lot of weird stuff it's movies but it's also like weird medical tapes and, and fine just funny finds the yeah. things you find in a thrift shop and you go what is that <laughs> exactly so yeah that's vhs quest or you can join me on instagram i'm at sam ashes 23 i've got a new comic book coming out soon so i'm sure i'll be posting about that and uh yeah i think that's it we'll be back in a couple of weeks with life force 
And until then, thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.